0: So we've been sitting for a little bit. Uh, why don't we stand up and sing the song, This Is the Day. This is the seated. So this morning I'd like to look at seven halves of the Bible, not H-A-L-V-E-S halves, but halves, H-A-V-E-S, halves, halves that the Bible tells us that we should do in practice, And if you would open up the Strong's Concordance and look in the Strong's Concordance book, you would find five whole pages front and back of how the word have is used in the Bible. So why these seven specific haves? As we'll go through, I think you'll find that even though these haves are maybe disconnected a little bit, they all have the common theme of this is what God desires of me as a Christian. And I'm not necessarily going to to do a deep dive into each of these halves, but we want to take a a brief look at each of these. And I think that our goal as a Christian should be to to have each of these seven halves that that I'm going to talk about and use them as building blocks in our life. And as we put these haves to practice and use them, I really think you'll find yourself being drawn closer to God and... um, to the presence of God and, than you were before. So I've got these seven Lego pieces right here. I'm going to kind of use these as a, kind of a marker where we're at in our message this morning. Uh, so when I talk about one of the seven halves, I'll put it up here and we'll kind of be building a little object. So that's what those are for. So the first two we'll look at have somewhat of a negative connotation, but nonetheless I think they really speak truth and tell us what we need to have in kind of a roundabout way. So number one is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Get one of these out here. We'll start with this one right here. Ephesians 5, verses 11 and 12, it begins with, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. So let's think through this, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Since God is light, I think that means that anything pertaining to darkness is unacceptable to God. And when we fellowship, have no fellowship with darkness, when we fellowship, we're Fellowship is when we 're interacting together with someone or a group of people because of you know a common theme of familiarity that's that's between us and I think fellowship can happen around any number of things that happen in life, you know things that are common to us in life, but what 's unacceptable is when our fellowship switches and we get, we begin to fellowship with things common to that of darkness, the things of the world. There's similar references Ephesians, similar reference to Ephesians 5 or also like uh, James chapter 4, verse 4, where it asks the question, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 and 16, it also asks a series of questions for us that have the Spirit of God living within us. And it asks, it says, What fellowship hath righteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, or Satan, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? And then the next verse in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 12, goes a step farther and says that not only are we to have no fellowship with darkness, but that it's a shame for us to even speak about the works of darkness that are done in secret. So instead of us fellowshipping with the works of darkness, we, we need to have the light of Christ within us, and our fellowship should be with, with Christ, with him as verse 14 says, and Christ shall give thee light. Okay, for the second half, turn to James chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and I'll be reading that, and you can follow along with that. James chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 You'll find it here in the first verse. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. It's not saying have not the faith, but, but it's telling us what we need with, with respect of persons. For if there come unto you into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there comes in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, And say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourself, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seat? Do not they blaspheme the worthy name by which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So kind of in a nutshell, I guess we want to just kind of gather all those verses together. We're not to have the faith of Jesus and then turn around and be partial in any way to someone. And it gives an example of how a rich person can be held with higher respect than that of a poor man who's also in our midst, even though that same rich man might be oppressive to the poor and and blasphemes the name of Christ. He's, He's still held somewhat in high esteem while the poor man is looked down on, even though he's very rich in faith. And we say, you know, I know better than to do that. But, you know, I think sometimes we can also show partiality and do the same thing by elevating a person or a group of people who by all outward appearances... You know, present themselves as having it all together. And I think by contrast, what God is impressed with is the humble servant who has inner character. That, that's what's valuable to God. And by us showing partiality or favoritism to some people over another, I think we also break God's royal law of loving our neighbor as ourselves, as mentioned in the scripture that I read. And when James is talking about the poor, I don't think he's only referring to those that are poor monetarily. You know, often people with simple values, they're snubbed and they're looked down on by more affluent people or a group of people. And, you know, these people by all appearances have their, their act together. But God, on the other hand, sees it differently. In verse nine he says, but if you have respect to persons, you commit sin. So as Christians, let's make sure that our Christianity isn't laced in any way with this type of hypocrisy, that of favoritism and partiality. So I need to give a little background to this third half. In Mark 11, Jesus had made his uh, triumphant entry into Jerusalem. When he was riding in, people were going before him and they were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, before him as he rode into the city on the back of a donkey. And that evening as he had gone to the temple and had, he had observed what was going on there, He had looked around the temple and saw everything, wasn't really pleased with it, but but he left and he and his disciples, they went out of the city of Jerusalem to spend the night in the little town of Bethany. Now, Bethany wasn't really that far away, I guess, in their terms. It was about a mile and a half walk to the eastern slopes of Mount Olivet. It was on the eastern slopes there. And Bethany was also a town where um, Lazarus lived. So there's a good chance that, being that Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus, that they may have stayed the night at, at Lazarus' place. But nevertheless, as they were walking the Mount a half back to Jerusalem the next morning after they spent the night there, Jesus was hungry, and seeing a fig tree up ahead, he saw that it was leafed out, and it looked like it by all outward appearances, it should have fruit on it at that time of the year, so he approached it with anticipation of finding figs on the tree to eat. But as he checked the tree over and looked for figs to eat, he was disappointed because he couldn't find any there to to eat so what happened next there in chapter eleven? It's a little hard for me to understand on the surface, but as you dig into it it makes a little bit more sense and jesus he cursed the tree because it wasn't bearing any fruit and as i thought about that i'm like why would he why would he do that why would he curse the tree so then jesus proceeded back to the temple or back to jerusalem and he specifically, you know, he, he was, as they were, they were going down the path, they saw the fig tree. He cursed it. He continued on his way, and he went to the temple where he proceeded where he, he had been the day before and had looked around, and he proceeded to cast out the money changers and those that sold things in the temple. And we don't read about the fig tree until several verses later, in verses 20 and 21, where on the following day after they had gone back to Bethany again. On the following day, they were following the same path and coming back into the city of Jerusalem again. And Peter, as he, uh, he took notice of this fig tree that yesterday had been green with leaves and looked promising for fruit, Jesus had cursed it the day before, and now it was withered and dried up, I guess from the roots up. So Jesus' response is what I'd like to focus on. His answer in verse 22 was four simple words. Have faith in God. And I think as you think back through it, the events of the previous two days had been you know, really quite traumatic. You'd had Jesus, tri- his triumphant entry into Jerusalem the first day. Well, I'm going, to call it, I'm going to be talking about three days, but the first day there, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem triumphantly on the back of the donkey. People were crying, Hosanna. The next day, after they rested at Bethany, he came back and he cast out the money changers. And then they went back to Bethany again. And now on the third day, they, as they were coming into the town again, they witnessed this dried up fig tree. So was Jesus pointing out That the temple was not bearing fruit, but was just a pretense and like the barren fig tree. I think that's possible that that's what it was. For us, I think that what Jesus is saying is that as Christians, we need to be bearing fruit. And to bear fruit, we need to have faith, we need to trust God. Jesus seems, I think Jesus seems to be drawing a connection between that of our fruit bearing and that of our faith, so much so that we can remove mountains if it's according to his will. On the contrary, though, when we're bearing a grudge against someone instead of bearing righteous fruit, that grudge will will hinder us from bearing any desirable godly fruit. So if we have a grudge, I think it's of most importance that we take care of that and to ask and to give forgiveness with a repentant spirit and to seek forgiveness from our Father. And I feel like I'm barely scratching the surface of these words of Jesus, of have faith, but but just really let those four words of Jesus speak to you. Uh, Have faith in God, trust him, and you will bear fruit. So if you're not there ready, uh, turn to Mark 11, and I'll just we'll just go over it real quickly. Read a few of those verses, starting in verse 12. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree afar off, afar off having leaves, he came if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, here's where he curses it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And then verses 15 to 18, it talks about how Jesus cast out the money changers in the temple there. I'm going to skip over that and pick up in verse 19. And when evening was come, he went out of the city, went back to Bethany. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots and Peter called to remembrance, saying unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou curses, it withers away. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that these things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught or a grudge against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses." Uh, let's see I was going to read to uh, verse 20 yeah we'll stop there so now for the uh, next four halves I'm going to be looking in first uh, Peter for those chapter two verse twelve specifically talks about having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may be they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So this verse brings to mind the old saying, actions speak louder than words. You know, while I think there's a time and there's a place for us to verbally testify for Jesus before others, our actions and our reactions and our responses to daily encounters that we have in the world, you know, that's always on display to people. Jesus himself said pretty much the same thing in Matthew chapter 5 verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father which is in heaven. So having an honest life and living it with integrity is perhaps I think one of the greatest ways to let Jesus light shine through us. And we need to be honest with ourselves and be asking God to show us any areas in our lives that are being lived dishonestly and with any deceptiveness. So that one's kind of a short one, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. For the next one, uh, let's see, we'll put this one out. <clears> 1 <throat> Peter chapter 3, verse 8. So this verse starts out with finally be all of one mind. It's talking about unity here as a brotherhood of believers how we need to have unity. And then there it is having compassion one of another. So how how are we supposed to be compassionate by showing love as brethren? By being tender to each other, and by using courtesy. I think our attitude of compassion should not be limited to only those within our brotherhood, but it needs to spill over to those around us and to those abroad into other countries. And I have to admit, though, that compassion doesn't always come easy for me, you know, because my desire, you know, is to do that, but it's not necessarily a a natural reaction and response of mine. So that when I see someone in a kind of a less than desirable situation, um, I, I really, you know, I need to have compassion. My my human response is to tends to be a, more along the lines of, you, know, you you got what you deserved. You know, it, it serves you right. But I'm thankful though for the compassion that God modeled for us. If his response toward us would have been like my human tendency of you got what you deserved or it serves you right, then none of us would be here today because Lamentations 3 verse 22 and 23 says, it's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. And there's also numerous places in Psalms that talk of God being full of compassion, as well as we know how Jesus was. We read in different places how he was moved with compassion and he touched someone or did something for him. Compassion is um, it's a very practical, hands-on character trait for us to have. Turn to 2 uh, Chronicles chapter 28, and I want to read to you a story of what compassion looks like. Second Chronicles chapter 28. And I think I'll start reading in uh, verse 13 and go through 17. And he said unto them, Ye shall not bring in the captives hither, for whereas we have offended against the Lord already, you intend to add more to our sins and to our trespasses for our trespass is great, and there is fear of wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the princes and all the congregation, and the men which were expressed by name rose up and took the captives, and with spoil and with the spoil clothes all that were naked among them, and arrayed them and shod them and gave them to eat and to drink, anointed them and carried all the feeble of them upon asses and brought them to the Jericho, the city of palm trees, to their brethren. Then they returned to Samaria. That's an example of where um, the, the prisoners were, were treated in a, with compassion in the Old Testament There having a the next um have is just a few verses down in chapter three of of first Peter, so I think maybe we'll we'll read that one there. Uh, chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verse 13. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled." But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing." Having a good conscience, a clear conscience you know has nothing to to hide of course you know we're we're talking about trying to hide something from mankind because with God nothing is hid that that's that's a given fact that that all of our actions as well as our thoughts you know they're all plainly seen by God you know we, we can't hide anything from god we can hide hide things from men but from god we can't psalms 139:2 says thou knowest my downsitting my uprising thou understandest my thoughts afar off god, god knows all that thing everything about us 1st corinthians 3:20 says the lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise and jesus also said in luke 12:2 there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed neither hid that shall not be known everything will be known is known by god and having a good conscience before men means that we haven't been trying to pull the wool over the eyes of people to deceive them in any way you know trying to compromise our integrity i think what a good conscience boils down to is just being open and honest admit when you fail and follow God's principles in living out our lives. That way, if and when someone desires to slander you or or bring a false accusation against you, they won't be able to find anything to bring against you. And Paul gives Titus some really pertinent advice as a young man that, that will serve us well also. Titus Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Paul gave Titus this advice. He said, In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say about you. Okay, so that is the, we'll come to the last one here and that's found in chapter 4 verse 8 in 1st Peter That says and above all have fervent charity among yourselves As you read through that in chapter 4 it's re- really easy To miss it and just read over that verse. The word fervent means literally intense, with our energies strained to the utmost. Does that describe your love, your charity for the church? And sometimes I think we excuse ourselves for not loving our brothers because we say, I can't make myself love someone whom I really don't love. I don't know that we have an option as to whether we should or shouldn't love our brothers or sisters. You know, This, this spiritual love we're to have isn't something we ac- acquire naturally when we're born. It comes as a result of being born again spiritually. And we have to grow and cultivate this love by knowing God through fellowship with him. Fervent love to the brotherhood is all of 1 Corinthians 13. And then as the, the last part of verse 8 says, uh, I just read the first part, it says charity literally covers a multitude of sins. And this isn't saying that that we're able to atone for sins in any way, but that in our loving we're able to see past the sins and thereby give forgiveness to that person. We see the person for the potential that they have at going forward. Verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 13, I think, is just really fitting. Charity beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love does all that. And there's really a whole lot more that can be said about... um, love, but but I'm going to leave it at that for now. So in review, as Christians, we're to have no fellowship with darkness, we're to have no respect of persons, we're to have faith, we're to have honest conversation, we're to have compassion, we're to have a good conscience, and we're to have fervent love. I think All these things play a part as we become more like Christ and we become useful.